0: All right here we are in Acts chapter 4 this morning I want to read to you um, a letter on March 18th 1777 Moses Dunbar of Connecticut a widower who had recently remarried wrote this letter to his five young children my children remember your creator in the days of your youth learn your creed the Lord's prayer and the Ten Commandments and Catechism and go to church as often as you can and prepare yourselves as soon as you're of proper age to worthily partake of the Lord's Supper. I charge you all never leave the church. Read the Bible. Love the Savior wherever you may be. I am now in Hartford Jail condemned to death for high treason against the state of Connecticut. I was 30 years last June the 14th God bless you that was his last letter to his children I'll say more about Mr. Dunbar in a little while we've been looking at the book of Acts and last week we started in chapter four and I said there were two key passages in Acts four that are really essential texts go to places for Christians in thinking about some of the big questions that uh, in life And last week we discussed the first and most important issue which was salvation. That's above everything. Acts 4.12. It's so incredibly important. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Those words just press us to, to look at Jesus and say either yes or no because the claim is that he alone is the way to salvation people think that's being narrow but some paths are narrow jesus said the way to life is narrow he said that and only a few find it he said so if it's true that we are unworthy of heaven and the bible says that if it is true that jesus is god come as man to make us fit for heaven then yes it's a narrow way he's the only way only he was qualified to pay for our sins and that's why it's narrow we all want to point to our own righteousness as a ticket to heaven human beings are just kind of wired that way but God said in scripture that he's looked throughout the, all the earth and there is none righteous not even one three times it says that in the bible the amazing thing is that as holy and pure as God is as righteous as God is His love is so great that he did make a way. It's a narrow way but it's a real one. A way to make us righteous in his eyes. So God the son became a man and this pure man takes the whole burden of our guilt on himself. He takes the whole punishment that we justly deserve. And if we repent of our sins and our vanity and turn to him he will forgive us. And more than that he will give us a new heart. A whole new disposition. Uh, uh, He will become the focus of our lives. That can only happen through Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven. That has been given among men. By which we must be saved. That is the first great essential passage in Acts chapter 4. Now I want to move on to the second one. So let's talk about the narrative a little bit. Remember where we are in this story. Peter and John are standing before the great council in Jerusalem. It all started when Peter healed a lifelong cripple in the name of the risen Jesus Christ. It was hard to deny the miracle. Uh, This man was a well-known beggar. So in verse 7 the apostles are asked by what power or in what name have you done this? And then, then Peter gives his famous kind of blistering answer. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by this name this man stands before you today in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you the builders but which became the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So you murdered Jesus God raised him from the dead and salvation can only be found in him. That's where we stopped last time. So that was the essential first text. So today we're starting with the official response to those words of Peter. All right. So first the first response was one of amazement. So the great council. Well they're pretty used to people being intimidated by them because they're pretty fearful individuals and they have all the power. So these Galilean simpletons were standing before them and they didn't quite expect that bold of an answer so verse 13 it says now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So how did these men get such power and such eloquence? Well, at least some of the judges realized that these were men who had been with Jesus. So they are his disciples. So their first response is is amazement Then they start thinking about it. Well, these were trained by Jesus. And the second response they have in, in verse 14 is silence. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. So what are they going to say? What are they going to say? The man is right there. How can you argue against it when he's standing right in their midst? So these judges knew who he was. They would all been by the beautiful gate where this man sat begging for alms for decades. And so they, they call a closed session to deliberate. That's what... Uh, managerial groups always do and they want to talk quietly among themselves they call a closed session gentlemen you are excused while we discuss this manner so verse 15 it says when they had ordered them to leave the council they began to confer with one another verse 16 saying what shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it now you think at this point they'd be saying oh yeah, maybe maybe what Peter just told us is true, but that's not even what they're thinking about. Verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. So, one thing you notice here is that miracles don't have any impact on people at all necessarily. If you've got a if your mind is set a certain way, you just find your way around a miracle. So they can't explain away the miracle so they're just going to tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore. They're not going to say anything in that name. The name that actually brought about this man's healing. It would look really bad uh, for them to punish now people for something so wonderful that they can't even deny it themselves. So, so we'll let them go with a strong warning. That's what they're thinking. So the plan is to intimidate them into silence. And that usually worked because these guys had all the power. So they tell Peter and John verse 18 when they had summoned them to come back in they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus at all not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So how do these uneducated simple Galileans respond to that well verse 19 Peter and John answered and said to them whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That is our second essential text from Acts chapter 4. That's the, this is the critical moment when a follower of Jesus has to choose between obeying God or obeying the authorities. And there's only one right choice. He or she has to obey God. That's the only choice you can make. God is higher than man. The eternal has to take precedence over what's temporal. The state has legitimate authority. God has a higher, a much higher authority. So when they conflict, when God's commandments conflict with the demands of human government, then civil disobedience becomes the necessary act. We have to disobey. That's the principle it's it's actually stated more succinctly in the next chapter in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 a little bit more famously even when Peter and John again are standing before the council and tell them we must obey God rather than men. That's the shortest and simplest way to say it. We must obey God rather than men. So we want to talk about what that means today. This statement is the foundational text really for the Christians relationship to the state. But it's not the only foundation. Always on any given subject you need to thoroughly take all of what scripture has to say on any topic and then humbly and in the fear of God draw your conclusions by giving proper weight to everything the Bible has to say on a given topic. That's how you study the Bible and learn and become wise. If this were the only statement in scripture what they tell the the council here in this passage then our relationship to the governing authorities would be different you could think I don't need to obey the government at all I I only worry about obeying God that's all my concern is or I will obey the government as it suits me I'll obey when I feel like it but before you allow your mind to sink into that there are two other main portions of apostolic teaching on this not to mention the words of Jesus when he said render to Caesar the things that are Caesar but I want to talk about these two apostolic portions because they're extensive and they're really helpful so the first one's first Peter chapter two you might want to turn there the entire Bible supports the idea of authority and submission in human relations in various relationships something that Americans chafe against authority and submission. So we need to be more careful than most regarding our relationship to the governing authorities. In a lot of cultures this isn't even a big controversial thing. But in our culture this is a hard one. Okay here's Peter. First Peter chapter 2 verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to the king as one having authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King servants be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle but also to those who are unreasonable for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So a Christian is to be an exemplary citizen and a dutiful slave should he be in that lowly condition. So this is the primary teaching in the Bible on the Christian as a citizen. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to the king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Peter wrote that. The same Peter who is in Acts chapter 4 saying to the highest authority of his people we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. is that contradictory is he telling you two different things one by his actions and one by his teaching no not at all it is a hierarchy a hierarchy there is authority and there is higher authority God stands over the government they are not equal So Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses. And these rulers are saying they are not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So you cannot do both. You can't honor both. You can't honor Jesus' commandment and the government at the same time because they're saying two completely different things. So the government must be given in this situation a no. I have to obey God. Now Peter and John don't call the high priest bad names. They don't insult them. Uh, They did point out their sin in condemning Jesus. That actually is an act of love on their part, giving the leadership an opportunity to repent of what they did to see their own sin. Peter also enjoins us in verse 12 to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, etc. You know, I have... I have not witnessed an over concern by many evangelicals like us to keep our behavior excellent in relationship to the government. I haven't seen that being the overwhelming um, reality of our time in, in the behavior of many. Spreading false information slandering people that you disagree with lately even language endorsing or suggesting violence at a large public Christian event, that's not good. That is not good. That little thing in the Old Testament and the New Testament about bearing false witness, that even applies to human beings that are in the opposite political party from us. It even applies to people that work in the media. It even applies to cults and weird religions never bear false witness about anyone. It's a violation of Christian love and personal holiness to do that. A friend of mine posted a a meme recently about people he despises politically and it contained several outright falsehoods. So I just typed underneath it there. I, I commented I said some of these are false. And I just assumed he would be grateful for that information so he could protect himself from bearing false witness against anybody. He, he could look it up and just check it out himself and find out if those were true things or not. You know, people take these memes and they just post them on social media. And I just said, hey, some of these are false. So giving him a chance to correct himself, I just assumed he would actually do that. And he just unfriended me. That's what he did. He didn't want to change it or deny it or research it. And I don't mind being unfriended but I'm trying to grasp in my own mind the heart of a believer that feels no obligation to be known to the world as a person of integrity and a a person with, uh, in his expression of public opinions. We should be people of the most vigorous integrity. Is Tim Christian a man of integrity? No, he lies all the time. If, If the world can say that about us, That's tragic. What follower of Jesus would want to behave in a way that the world knows, knows that we are people that don't have integrity because we're willing to slander people and tell things that are untrue. People should not be able to fairly accuse us ever of wrongdoing. And if we are guilty of that, we should be in the deepest grief that we misrepresented our Lord to the world. He's trying to reach. 1 Peter 2.16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. I think that really covers that. A bond slave of God is going to have the highest integrity and not spread lies or, or deal in falsehoods in any way shape or form. We even want to. We have a solemn duty to keep our behavior excellent. Well let's go over to Romans chapter 13. That's the other main text here. It comes Paul actually hears from the same Holy Spirit that Peter does and he says something very very similar. Romans 13 verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they have opposed they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Very similar words to Peter isn't it? That is the Christian doctrine of citizenship in this world. In whatever country you live in. Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves that's God's word. Now for fortunate to live in a country like ours a democratic republic and for the Christian that makes for obedience something within a constitutional framework. Uh, In other words we have enumerated rights that belong to us as citizens of America. We have courts. If we are told we cannot practice our faith according to the Word of God, we have a lot of legal weight behind us um, to seek relief from punishment for following our faith. That's just part of our system, and that's a great part of our system, something our founding fathers wisely put into our Constitution. But there are very strong cultural tides moving in against us in these days so there will be great battles in the years ahead in courts and questions related to government authority and Christian conscience they can get really complex and kind of muddied you know so we have to state uh, we have state jurisdictions and uh, local jurisdictions and federal jurisdictions and sometimes those are a confusing blend and they sometimes disagree with each other. We do have the right to protest peacefully in our country. We can go to court to protect our rights. We can advocate for our values in a democratic system through elections. But do you know what's more important than all of that? Our rights, our freedoms, our court systems. The most important thing is keeping our behavior excellent. That matters more than all of those other things. We're allowed to use those things. They're provided by our system. Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen to make appeals through the court system. We can do that. But the most important thing is to keep our behavior excellent. That's what the apostles are telling us. So we have to be very careful with the truth and painstakingly careful for our reputation amongst unbelievers. There is and there will be enormous cultural and possibly legal pressure to conform to things that we know are wrong that that is probably coming. It's already here really it's a big topic right now and it will be for the foreseeable future for the rest of my life I'm sure. Uh, Rod Dreher who uh, has a new book out called Live Not By Lies. He's a pretty wise Christian author. He describes what he believes is he calls it a soft totalitarianism that's coming to America and we already see it in compelled speech uh, in many environments you have to use preferred pronouns or you're going to lose your job or your place in the academic programs and you'll be labeled as a hater if you don't call some guy she if, if he wants you to or any of that kind of thing compelled speech forcing you to use speech you know is not true that's a problem. Compelled to support Gay Pride Month in your workplace. Drear actually mentions how in Poland um, they're complaining because American companies are coming over there and forcing them to support Gay Pride Month in businesses that they establish there so they give the Polish people jobs. They don't agree with that but to keep their jobs they have to celebrate Gay Pride Month and that kind of thing happens here as well. Churches Are in some states legally including our state legally denied the right to counsel somebody who doesn't want to remain in a homosexual lifestyle. It's illegal to do that. Uh, Christian colleges and universities will be pressured in the future to abandon student conduct codes. Christian standards for student sexuality and if they. put biblical frameworks on who can come and who cannot come to that institution. The government will do everything they can to shut those colleges and universities down. That's coming down the pike. There's already been court battles over that. Coerced participation in really weird diversity. Seminars where companies or the government compels people to confess sins of racism that they're not even guilty of. Um, These are all ways we will be compelled by law and statute and just the government policy to lie to to, to say things that aren't true. Business owners um, compelled to photograph a wedding uh, that they believe is sinful on the pain of losing their business um, or baking a cake as the case has, has been in Colorado not too long ago so to live faithfully for Christ will be increasingly costly if we just say what is true it's going to be a battle you're gonna have to make choices about whether you might even have a job um, or or you're gonna have to speak lies you have to make those decisions now when it comes to responding to the government some issues are very complicated one of the best books I've ever read to stimulate my thinking in this whole area of the Christians relationship to government was a book I was assigned in college in a history class it's called Christians in the American Revolution by Mark Knoll it's really valuable because that momentous event in American history which we all know fairly well most of, some of us know it very well um, it's it's part of who we are as a people but it's distant enough where we can talk about it without getting personally agitated about it all but it was a rebellion against an imperial government by a largely Christian population that's what the American War of Independence was or the American Revolution whatever you want to call it Um, it's a good example since we know about it but we're removed from it so what does a Christian citizen choose to do when his native land rebels against the king Peter says, honor the king. And that mattered to pastors and Christians and uh, church leaders back in those days in the 18th century. Can you have a rebellion and honor the king? I mean, that's a really big question. Can you have a rebellion? and honor the king. So Christians approached that subject in basically four ways and that's what the book kind of lays out. Christians in the American Revolution. There were four Christian responses. You could categorize them in four main groups. One was the patriot position uh, which fully supported splitting from England even if it meant war. There was the loyalist position which was be faithful to the king. This was especially the view of of those that belonged to the Church of England, which was actually the religion of the British Empire. But also many other people, because the Bible just says, honor the king. There were also a a group which we've labeled the Reformists, they generally supported the idea of breaking with England but they emphasized most the need for Americans to repent of their own oppressions against peoples. So in many, in many of the colonies there was religious oppression going on against Baptists and kind of um, not your favored group sects of Christians and other groups like that. There was oppression against slaves obviously black people and Native American people and the reformists said hey. That's great let's break from tyranny. Why don't you stop tyrannizing people. So they wanted to focus on let's take this situation and learn about it for our own personal holiness and growth as Christians and how we treat other people. And then there were the pacifists like the Quakers and some of those kind of groups who, who just st- were not getting involved. We're st- staying out of it. Now our friend that I mentioned at the beginning of the message today Moses Dunbar of Connecticut whose final words to his children we started with. He loved the Lord. He had been earlier in his life disowned by his father for joining the Church of England. He and many others believe that scripture forbids rebellion against God's established authority and the king. That was his deep religious conviction. Honor the king. I mean that's very straightforward. The patriots would have said the Bible does not support tyrannical government. And they point to 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 also. Because they said God's purpose for government is plainly stated there. Romans 13, 3 for example. Paul, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So a tyrant, they would say, is bearing the sword for for evil. They're bearing the sword against what's good. Therefore the tyrant forfeits his right to be obeyed. He's the one doing evil. So separating from a tyrant is true and proper for a Christian, even by war, if that's necessary. And that has some sense to it. It absolutely does. But the problem becomes claiming over time that anything you don't like is tyranny. You see how that kind of slips into something uh, that's not completely a legitimate application of that principle that well if he's a true tyrant and he's supporting evil then I don't have to obey him. Well if your taxes are higher than you want them to be is that tyranny? Uh, How does that all work out? So that gets complicated. That position. The reformists like I said they mostly agreed about tyrants. But they said you're not any better patriot. You have your own oppressions going on and you better deal with that first. So my point is Christians do come to different positions on things. So then or now we have to come to our convictions by genuinely desiring to obey scripture. And not use scripture as a covering for our anger or selfish desires or just having things our way. We must come to our position honestly. Letting God speak to us in his word and letting the chips kind of fall where they may. So we humble ourselves before God's word and we let him speak to us about how we're going to apply these great truths. That's what Moses Dunbar appears to have done. He, he believed he was honoring God by remaining loyal to the king and he was arrested with a, a, a king's commission in his pocket to become an officer in the British army and he was accused of trying to persuade other citizens of Connecticut to join with the king of England and he was willing to fight and die to uphold the honor of the king. Others thought he should hang for the exact same conviction. It's a pretty interesting story about him. We wouldn't have known anything about him except back in the early. 20th century or the mid 20th century about 1940s or so somebody was tearing down a colonial house and they wanted to rebuild it in another place on their property and inside the wall they found this little booklet of 10 pages which had Dunbar's personal writing about this he wrote out what he wanted to share with his children and he wrote out a speech he wanted to make when they hung him and this is the actual book he used that he read when they hung him so they actually found that not that long ago and um, so we know a, a lot about his life from that. He kind of tells his story. I want to tell you a little bit of part of his story that he wrote. For that it was like ten pages long. He said, "From the time that the present unhappy misunderstanding between Great Britain and the colonies began, I freely confess I could, I never could reconcile my opinion to the necessity or the lawfulness of taking up arms against Great Britain." I was tried on Thursday 23rd January 1777 for high treason against the state of Connecticut by an act passed in October last. Being accused of enlisting men for General Howe and for having a captain's commission for that purpose I was adjudged guilty and on the Saturday following was brought to the bar of the court and received the sentence of death. The time of my suffering was afterward fixed to be the 19th day of March 1777 which tremendous and awful day now draws near. When I must appear before the searcher of hearts to give an account of all things done in my body, whether they be good or evil, I shall soon be delivered from all the pains and troubles of this mortal state, and shall be answerable to none but the all-seeing God who is infinitely just and knoweth all things. But I am fully persuaded that I depart in a state of peace with God And my own conscience. I can have but little doubt of my future happiness through the mercy of God and the merits of Jesus Christ. I have sincerely repented of all my sins, examined my heart, prayed earnestly to God for mercy, for the gracious pardon of my manifold and heinous sins, and now resign myself wholly to the disposal of my Heavenly Father, submitting my will to His. From the very bottom of my heart I forgive all enemies, And earnestly pray to God to forgive them all. Some part of Joseph Smith's evidence was false but I heartily forgive him and likewise sincerely beg forgiveness of all persons whom I have injured or offended. My last advice to you above all other concerns prepare yourselves with God's assistance for your future eternal state. You will all shortly be as near eternity as I now am and will then view both worldly and spiritual things in the same light in which I do now view them, you will see all worldly things to be but shadows, but vapors, but vanity of vanities, and the things of the spiritual world to be of the importance, an importance beyond all description. You will then be sensible that the pleasure of a good conscience and the happiness of the near prospect of heaven infinitely outweighs all the riches pleasure and honor of this mean sinful world. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Ghost have mercy on me and receive my spirit. Amen and amen and it signed Moses Dunbar. He read that speech to the very large crowd that was gathered to watch him hang. But he was right that above all other concerns prepare yourselves with God's assistance for your future eternal state. That's what matters. Far more than the battles that we fight down here, however important we might think they are at the time. We might disagree about how it plays out, but the principle of honoring the king and his governors is the bottom line doctrine of Christian citizenship. The exceptions in Acts chapter 4 affirms for us that there are exceptions. Those come when the state commands us to sin or denies us the right to be obedient to God. When that happens, if they command us to sin or to not obey God in some way, then we respectfully disobey, willingly suffer the consequences for following Christ. And that leads us kind of up to this current day that we live in. It, it's really interesting all the talk about the safety measures for COVID-19 for example among believers and I just see it all the time in social media and stuff. John MacArthur the man who gave me personally my love for the Bible and who baptized me and uh He believes there should be no safety measures at church zero distancing no face coverings no sanitization nothing like that going on and he openly is defying the government on freedom of religion grounds so he's looking at that at our right to worship without any kind of limits put on by the health department as one of those exceptions that's interesting to me because in the past. He, he said the declaration of independence quote is contrary to the clear teachings and commands of Romans 13 1 through 7. So the United States was actually born out of a violation of New Testament principles and any blessings God has bestowed on America have come in spite of the disobedience of our founding fathers. So he took the position that the American Revolution was, was sinful. He's with Moses Dunbar on that one. He has said that the government laws that insist that bakers bake cakes for weddings that they don't believe are moral that they should bake the cake. That's what he says bake the cake. But now he says the state can have nothing to say about how we gather during a health crisis. That that has no relevance to us whatsoever. We don't have to obey anything the government asks us to do with regard to those things. So although Pastor John and I have really similar theology and I appreciate him so much. I think we're on different sides of each one of these things. Uh, I think the American r- Revolution, especially its leaders, were exemplary in trying to break away from England peacefully. And I think the Declaration of Independence actually is a masterpiece. And our involvement in the war was entirely defensive. They wanted to break away peacefully. We were attacked mercilessly, and we fought back. So I don't have a problem with the American Revolution. I think it was. I mean there were horrible things that happened on both sides in any war. But but in terms of the general principles and our leadership I thought they handled it bri- brilliantly. They really tried to have a peaceful break. Many efforts to approach England and not even break away to try to solve the problems. I think bakers and wedding photographers should be allowed to follow their conscience and s- shouldn't have to bake the cake and shouldn't be told by their pastors to bake a cake if it violates their conscience. I don't think that should happen. I don't think the government should force them to do that I think and and we've won some big cases on that point. And I think the government should not be dismissed out of hand automatically when there are health concerns and they ask for our cooperation in dealing with a health crisis in the country. Even if they have it wrong we owe them as much in the way of obedience as we can without diminishing our duty to obey the Lord. So the Lord says certain things. So we do those things. But if they say be safe and do this along with what you're doing. Hey okay. I mean I don't have a problem with that either. Even if I don't really like it. So what does submit yourself and honor the king mean in these kinds of situations? I know it means something. So that's what we have to wrestle with. So my old pastor and I actually disagree with these things on on those particular matters and that's okay. It's actually okay to disagree about that. If that disagreement is coming from sincere efforts on all of our parts to do God's will by scripture and not trying to force scripture just to back up or whatever our preconceived ideas are. If, If we're all doing it that way then it's good. And if we come to different conclusions on that that's okay. We all have to wrestle with application of core principles to the real world. And we might come up in different places on different things. He says bake the cake. The government tells you to do that. I say hey you've got a conscience issue there. Don't bake the cake if it violates your conscience. We shouldn't do anything that violates our conscience. Even if it costs us our business. But that that whole idea is is wrestling to discern God's will this we need to wrestle with the scriptures on what these things saying we're wrestling to discern God's will not justify our own preferences Paul talks about gray areas in Romans chapter 14 verse 5 and he says each person must be fully convinced in his own mind that's a very valuable principle and if somebody's convinced in their own mind rebel against England and somebody else is convinced in their own mind before Christ to defy a tyrant. They're both okay in the Lord's eyes I think and but we, we have to fight wrestle with ourselves to make sure that we're obeying God not our own inclinations that we're doing the best thing we can to serve him and obey him with regard to all of these principles with the exceptions but uh, the foundational principles as well as well of authority And submission that's what human life is in the Bible and that's what we have obligations to do. So fully convinced in your own mind that suggests prayerful working out these ideas in a very careful way to make sure you're doing the most you can to be obedient to God in whatever he says. So how do these commandments apply to me? That's the question. Am I honoring God with my response to that? Remember your personal desires and feelings are not the center of the world. God's will is the center of all things. So we have to adjust ourselves to whatever God says, right? And God says, be an excellent model citizen. And when you're an excellent model citizen, you bring him glory. And that furthers the gospel. He never says, be an angry rebel. He never says that. Our calling is to bring him glory in the ways that he asks us to do that. So the world out there, people who might disagree with us, people who are in government, they should see us as peaceful, law-abiding, and scrupulously honest people. Then if we say, hey, I have to disobey you here, or I can't obey on this issue, they will have to think about the kind of people we are. And why we're being stubborn on this particular point. They will have to tell lies to paint us as evil. And that's what Peter's talking about there. When they slander you or tell lies about you. Let it be because you're, you're so right. That they can't get you for anything that is truly bad. They can only blame you for standing up for God that's what he's talking about and that's exactly how Peter and John are acting in Acts chapter 4. Some of those people we might win over if we handle ourselves the right way. There's one rule that applies to all human interactions that comes from the Lord Jesus do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So when we talk about our opponents our political enemies or anything else how would you want them to treat you. Would you want them to slander you lie about you spread false information about you i doubt it and if you would not like that then don't do that to them you'd be a person of great integrity that's what we're called to our land our land needs people like that let's pray father god help us to be obedient to your word in all things help us to examine our own hearts to humble ourselves before the commandments that are so clear in scripture. We might actually disagree on some of their applications but we need to fight so that we're fully convinced in our own mind not by our hearts but by your word that we're doing the right thing. And we thank you for giving us the privilege to act like free men but not to use our freedom for anything evil. And We give you our lives and we dedicate to you, Lord, our, our citizenship. May it be something that pleases you in how we conduct ourselves in our land. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, next time we'll continue on in Acts chapter 4. We'll see you next time.